This podcast is proudly brought to you by the new term at fxphd.com with new Nuke, RealFlow, Houdini, Mayer, Cinema 4D, Previs and much, much more. Check it out now at fxphd.com and take your career to the next level. You're listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we are going beyond, beyond the Thunderdome. We're going down a furious road. We're going to be talking to John Seal, the actual DOP of the, even as we speak, still being filmed, uh, Fury Road. So this is a bit of an exclusive to be able to have uh, a chat with the DOP, literally um, while the film is still uh, in production and being shot. So we're very excited about that. Uh, we're also uh, going to be talking later in the show uh, to Kirk Tuck. Now, Kirk is a photographer and uh, cinematographer who does a lot of work, but he posted an incredibly interesting uh, blog post during the week on the death or the, the precipitous fall of uh, DSLR sales, and so we're going to have a chat to him about what that means, why there's been suddenly, um, in this last year, a lot less cameras being sold. Mm. But all of that and more coming up here on the RC Podcast, where we see our role to mind the news, filter the blogs, and, of course, have some of our now rather famous, rather exquisite rat holes. Um, This is all the camera tech that we are discussing, obsessing about, arguing about, and trying to kind of work out. And of course, as always, the star of the show, Mr. Jason Wingrove. How are you? Hello. Welcome. Welcome from the FX PhD, FX Guide, Compound, Miramar, from speaking to you from Pod Bay, Pod Pod Bay Bay 1, Pod Bay 2. Oh, you can be be a Pod Bay 1, I'll be Pod Bay (laughs) 2. Yes. For those of you that uh, that don't know, we have these uh, podcasting pods. A bit of retro 60s design that work incredibly well as sound booths. But anyway, they are. They sound fantastic. We have our own ones. He's not, uh, he's not in my pod. He's in his own pod. And uh, if you've seen Men in Black, you'll know what I'm talking about. And Jason, of course, will Twitter it as we speak. So all of that and more coming up on the show. Let's start with the news. And Jason, um, I've got to say uh, another, how can I put this, um, awkward moment on, uh, on our favorite uh, site where um, we had... The founder of Red retiring from being the public face of Red, which we kind of thought he'd already done, but uh, it was nice to have a nice a last a last hurrah of the uh, uh, chest thumping sort of post, which then turns into uh, <laughs> backwards and forwards bantering, which then turns into the whole thing being shut down and closed, and uh <laughs> so it was kind of funny. Um, yes, Jim Janard, finally, uh, I guess he's saying his last post. Will it be? Come on. It's kind of like the, uh, I don't know, who's, who's a famous artist who keeps saying I'm, I'm retired but then keeps doing comeback, con- comeback tours. Like the who. Okay. <laughs> it's like the, the final comeback tour. tour I don't know tour. who. Here's the thing, though. I've got to say I, I can see both sides of this um, argument. So I am on uh, the CML list, I guess, um, after oh, this. Good luck I might to get you. I can't. It. It's, not, it's not a community. I mean, red user can be pretty... People can criticize, but uh, CML, man, that's a whole different ball game. Yeah, people can criticize Jim and and or, or regularly do, but I've got to say, I was taken aback, and I'm going to say this one because it, I think it referenced us. We had the discussion with um, about the new Epic. Uh, we had, uh, uh, let's face it, an informal chat to uh, Mark Toyer, who was on the road testing it. And Mark made what was clearly a very positive review of the camera, mm. but as part of that, made a couple of comments about how he was just basically saying so many stops in the highlights and in the shadows. And this was almost immediately picked up on CML, and someone posted, 
well, very distressing news. I'm hearing that it's not, you know, performing. And I was like, really? Dude. That is the takeout from that discussion? Yeah. I mean, you could not, unless you put out a completely vanilla flavored press release where no one is honest, you couldn't have had a more genuinely enthusiastic review of something. He wasn't Absolutely. saying it was, it was, you know, the no. second coming. He was just simply saying it was really, really good. He really likes it. I uh, thought it was great. Yep. In his opinion. They couldn't have up. had a better... Because I think when we last talked, obviously, we were recording, speaking with Mark while he was on the road shooting it. And this was pre the footage being announced, yeah. pre the footage being being released on, on Red User. And they could not have got a better... They should have they should have paid him in five and yet, dragons. And you know? yet... It was the brilliant, most perfect yeah. sort of launch. It's a very, very hard... And Mark and I talked about this. It's a very hard very hard thing to, to, to launch and to make, you know, something that takes extraordinary levels of light and makes it look normal. It's very hard to then post photos that look normal and, and, and make it look great. But, you know, yeah, they could... It was a terrific, a terrifically positive launch, which, again, gets completely 180'd. So, yeah, it's, it's not my favorite place to hang out. And, but look, I... I and, and I've got to say, my, my, my problem with this is that the tone I'm getting from some of the, some, not all, some of the cinematographers who, you know, cinematographers are some of my favorite people in the world, but some of the people that were posting on the list were literally like saying, if you don't act humble and, um, and be more reserved and more yes. sort of respectful to me, the definitive DOP, then, you know, you should cop it. And then if, if you take that badly, then you're being overly sensitive and whatever. And yet none of these individuals would have tolerated the kind of abuse that was being thrown uh, at Jim. Now, have, that being said, I've also been criticizing Red for uh, saying they're going to do stuff and not doing it. Yep. But surely this sure. is a nuanced response, right? It's not black nor white. It's, it's fair enough to do that kind of criticism, though. This is completely different. This is just un, un, uneducated completely biased just immediately just sort of stabbing people for for stabbing the uh, i mean i think the problem the problem with jim's post i must say is though that he keeps bringing up he's his own worst enemy he keeps saying all the negative stuff the only any negative stuff a lot of this negative stuff we hear about epic or about red in general that they were a scam and stuff is stuff that you know, was maybe said once, said once in passing six years ago, and every time Jim gets on the boards, he mentions it. You know, the only the the only time we hear about them being called a scam is when Jim tells us they were. You know what I mean? A lot of the negative stuff and the, the histo- history of uh, anti red is it comes from <laughs> comes from Jim telling us. You know what I mean? So yeah, I not- mean, I think that the problem is that. Um, you either buy into a certain way of um, interacting with the world, which is, you know, let's face it, um, vastly different to most other companies that Red put out, or you don't. My problem is, I feel like if you don't, why don't you just step away? And if you do, then also, you know, I don't think that we should take everything that Red says as face value and and completely, um, you know all worship uh, at the altar. But, you know, this... No. this. Uh, I think we just... It, we need to back away from this sort of stuff, to be honest. It's really getting very boring. Uh, I don't... 
often go on the blogs. I mean, I own one of the cameras and I'm in line to get upgrades and I, there's a lot of stuff I'm pre-ordered for, but I don't go to Red User all the time. If something happens, I need to sometimes get told about it and I have to go then look. I don't spend my time trolling this stuff and, I'm, I'm you know, it's time to sort of move away from this a little bit and I'm, I'm hoping or I can only presume that this will be a little bit of a changing of the garden, a little bit of a moving. I'd love to see red and all of that stuff and CML, everything all sort of just let's just all move on a little bit and just start getting a little bit less snarky and, um, you know, let's have a bit of a changing of the guard and let's, I'd like to see reds, if you can, I'd say inverted commas attitude or perceived attitude to, to, to be, you know, to, to shift. It's a little bit of, it's a little bit of Steve Jobs, you know, handing over to, so to speak, to, um, Tim Cook, you know, it's, it's a, it's a different sort of face of the company, which does have uh, implications behind the scenes. I I do think that it's come down a little overnight. I mean, there, there seemed to be pretty bad blood running there between Jim and, and, uh, Jeff Boyle, but I did see that Jeff had posted on, um, Red User overnight, in fact, that, uh, his initial quoting of mm-hmm. the fact that Jim had retired was, in fact, um, uh, when he reread the post, not correct, and that he'd withdrawn, and that Jeff actually said that he'd misinterpreted that. And hopefully, um, hopefully, basically, everybody uh, can calm down a bit. I don't think Jim should engage on internet chat rooms as a valid um, gauge of, you know, basically the community's response. I think if you were to base your view of the world on what happens in internet chat rooms, you are going to have a pretty warped view of the world. It yes, just is indeed. not, um, no. you know, the sort of straight up uh, gauge of public opinion that you might give it credit for. So I, don't, I think there's faults on both sides, but I don't, think, I don't think I'm the first person to point out people say things in chat rooms and in emails <laughs> that they would never say to you face to face. Yeah, um, it's just a completely weird kind of lens upon which to view the world, I and I don't think it's something that we should definitely not be judging what, what, uh, what Red does or what other, uh, you know, what, what other people camera launches and tests and things. It's just not. It's not a great. It's not a great forum for all this sort of so stuff. So just to hose it down, Jim isn't uh, leaving Red. He isn't um, quitting. He isn't. Uh, I imagine going to be silent forever, but I don't know that for no. a fact. Um, obviously, he's still working behind the scenes. He just won't be the face, or you know, or, or posting on behalf of but, Red, but or be what, the just, face of Red. Like the world's a more interesting place for having Jim in it and throwing spanners in works and having weird posts late at night. And I mean, it's just absolutely. Uh, I like a world that has people in it that are personality. Absolutely, absolutely. So I don't want to go to a sterile world. And I honestly believe, and I think this is a point made over on the CML in the middle of all of this, which was there's a lot of cameras that we could really point to and say they are a direct response to the disruptive nature yep. that Red had in the marketplace. The world's been completely diluted. You know, the pers- personalities in anything, in sport, in 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 lots of fields of endeavor is 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 reducing down and getting dumbed down and vanilla and yeah. yeah you know the whole personality is kind of coming out of going out of the world and yeah no one can no one can deny what what red if, is what red Jim has done they've the, accelerated things if they hadn't done it maybe someone would have but you know maybe a little bit later they definitely kicked the whole well, you know the the industry in the ass and uh, we're all thankful know, for it to use that sporting analogy if if he is the McEnroe of cameras <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like it just makes it for a more interesting place. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> I like that. So, <laughs> so moving off that, but I guess tangentially, um, there has been some talk uh, about these um, kind of uh, amazing new uh, leaked information about Red User. Uh, not on Red User, but actually it was on uh, a blog. I think it was on Twitter. It was Twitter, Bill Bennett. Yeah, I saw that come past um, Bill Bennett, an Australian cinematographer, director who's uh, working in the States. Uh, is testing or has a beta version of uh, Red Cine X Pro for, it looks like, Windows only, but there will be a Mac, of course, uh, which seems to be happily, as has been hinted before and has been talked about, is uh, doing happily being a GPU accelerated without the use of a Red Rocket card. Now, this is obviously huge news, which is something we've yeah. been calling for for a long time. A lot of people have been calling for for this for a long time. Get away from. I mean, we're very. Everyone's very happy that there's red. You know, there is Red Rocket and there's the new Red Rocket card, and that there is an extra acceleration option for people who really need to kick the shit out of a lot of data. But for a lot of people who still want, who have some amazing grunt in their computers and computers to come. Uh, but don't necessarily, you know, they want to make the use of that without having to go and um, spend vast sums, six, seven, whatever thousand dollars is new for the new Red Rocket card and still get some, some you know, get some bang for their computing buck. It does um, change the equation a bit if we were to, you know, just purely in conjecture nature, look at the new Mac, right? Yeah. Because one of the criticisms was, well, you can't put a Red Rocket yeah. card in it. Exactly. Maybe you don't need to. Uh, well, I'm I'm sure that there will still be a benefit for the Red Rocket card, mainly obviously more for probably more for the new Red Rocket card. I'd say that the current, I'd say once this G- GPU, I mean we don't really know the specs and really how much it's really um, uh, helping us out yet. Oh, it's helping a lot. It was doing 6K on a Titan card at 24 frames a second. Mm. Now the Rocket card will still be faster than that, but 6K at 24 frames a second. Yeah. On a just on a you know graphics card, that's pretty impressive. How much is a Titan GPU card? Uh, and again, that's old technology in a way too, because a lot of people are going to be moving to uh, you know new Mac Pros, which obviously well, you can't it's not unless a, you put that in an external ca- case yeah, as so well. It's not old technology so much as it is different technology, right? Like it's just that it's Nvidia versus yeah PC PC technology. Yeah, I mean the. Um, the Titan card isn't particularly cheap, but by the same token, so. you're going to have a graphics card in your computer, so it's yep. not a... Like, if I have a Red Rocket in there, I'm not using it for anything but red. Yeah. Now, I'm wondering if this uh, acceleration is going to be limited to, you know, as we had with, say, um, in the earlier days of, uh, say, Resolve, you were limited to a few cards, like the Quadro 4000s, and, and then late, later people sort of started hacking things and... Or how many, you know, there was a limited set of cards you could use or get much benefit out of for, say, doing uh, the CUDA acceleration on Premiere. Uh, I'm hoping it won't, you know, we'll have a a somewhat of a list to choose from to get this GPU acceleration, not just this uh, Titan card. And I can only hope that when the new Mac Pro comes, which has a choice of one GPU card bolted into the machine, that we're going to have, hopefully... We'll get acceleration out of that as well. So, it's, yeah. It's, it's no, it's great. This is what we've been asking for. It's not normally the case that Dragon, uh, sorry, that Red runs Windows before Mac. Like, it normally they tend to be a bit of a Mac place. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was uh, 
It was pretty easy. No, I'm, I'm. Uh, look, I mean, this is this has been part of one of the big things that you can say with uh, the the p- big grumbles with, with Red has not been necessarily tied to the proprietary codec, which has been you know the the best and the worst of you know the, one of the best things about uh, the Red. But uh, it's tying to proprietary stuff. This was this has been the fall of many a, com- a huge company like say I don't know what do we talk about Avid, Silicon Graphics stuff like that who tie you who force you to use their own very expensive equipment and not give the user choice. Like Avid and have now been you know forced to and just the pressures from other competition to stop you from using their own proprietary in and out boards which were phenomenally expensive and if they broke they never repaired them it was like sorry you know we're not going to let you uh you know we're not going to repair this twenty thousand dollar io rack uh but we'll let you buy the new one the new version for you know only fifteen thousand so that that you can only survive for so long with those kind of tactics, and I think this is this is a great, um, you know, it shows a new red that we've talked about. I think so it's good to see that there. Uh, it's uh, and it it means again that the Mac Pro hopefully will be all the more valid and less of a its unexpandability. Its unexpandability it's will less be less of a pain in the ass. Yeah. yeah, good point. Okay, so but we uh, shall see again. Once all this shit actually is not more than vaporware, <laughs> I mean, va- I mean Mac, Mac Pro. <laughs> I don't think the Mac Pro is vaporware. I think it's well, not released yet. I mean, it's a bit harsh to say it's okay. vaporware. All right, Announceware. I, mean, I mean, I don't think Apple's ever announced a major Mac Tower type product and then not shipped it. And no, no, but like we have no ship date, no price. Well, yeah, but I Nothing. mean. It At the is. moment, it says it's really cool design. It's coming, but you know we don't know when. It's nothing we can plan for, you know. Okay. So anyway, in the meantime, this is this is you know very good news, and I really uh, absolutely applaud Red f- for this move, and and this is yeah, good good to hear, good to see. Yes, it is coming later this year, and there isn't a lot less of this year left, right? Yeah. I mean, they actually said it would ship this year, right? We're in to going into September. Mac Pro, you're talking? October. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm really taught. I'm worried about the Mac September, Pro now. October, November, December. It's I'm worried. Months. I absolutely would love to push that button in the moment, but I have this thing, this sort of, you know, the never buy the first thing you know, Apple ever makes kind of thing mm. ringing in my ears, you know? I just yeah. know there'll be some thing. Oh, the thermal core. Ah, yes. <laughs> There's a bit of a problem with that. <laughs> I'll never buy Mac Pro, you know, six point. Two, don't never get the never get 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 the the point zero. Wait for the point one yeah. um, variation on on the Mac Pro when they worked out the thermal yeah. core that yeah. didn't you know delaminate itself and the the CPU didn't didn't sort of melt and debond and, and slide out the bottom of the machine. Really love to still have an an iPod one, like with only five thousand songs. I don't, I would so I didn't I don't I had one I think I don't have one now but yeah, yeah. there's something about getting an early one. Yeah, know. no. I just literally the other day I was thinking about. Well, I'm, I'm just keener get a- to get that than I am a set of Google glasses. <laughs> Google glasses. Seriously. I tried those Google glasses on, and I seriously, like that is the quintessential. You'd get it, and you would never use it. it it's it's the Siri of Google. It's the Segway of. <laughs> no, no, don't say that. Okay. Segways are good. <laughs> no, but you equally would look like a tool using either of them. 
hey, bugger off. You know that they, you know what they, I mean, I'm sure we mentioned it before, what they call the people who wear Google, Google Glass, they're called glass holes. <laughs> we were at the rugby the other night and there was a guy in a Segway. Yes. And he was doing he a was jolly doing good job. Impressive. And I was quite envious of very him. Very impressive. Job. around with his steady yeah. cam on his Segway. But, and we, so yeah, we were at the rugby, we saw uh, Segway, steady cam, of course, and uh, drones. Driving, oh, the drones, driving. yeah. And I was just. It's very extracting, distracting going to a live game because I was completely watching all of those objects and not the match a lot of the time. And actually, being sort of rather sort of um, uh, I don't know, mean spirited of me that was hoping that something would go wrong with either of them just for a bit of a laugh. The um, <laughs> yes. So they, for those of you that aren't into rugby talk, we're, we're about to go there. Obviously, um, so there was that bit where he did a bomb, right? Which is basically they kick the ball up very, very high and charge. It was a massive kick. Yeah. Yes. So the ball goes straight up, pretty much, and everybody runs to basically be where it's going to land. Yeah. The thing is, there's a drone above that was filming. So you see the guy who, on the obviously, the drone operator just thumped it to oh, to go up. He and gunned it, it and it shot up, up twenty feet. For, there, it was probably it was getting close to being hit. Feet. Absolutely. So, but that yeah, operator was switched on because oh, yeah. theoretically, he must. You'd have to. That's you wouldn't n- want to look away. For the a drone was quite high, problem. but they can oh. kick those balls pretty Very freaking high. high. It's yeah. coming close to it. So this is an international game. So these are professional. Absolutely. The top of the game. This, this is, is a big guys the size of <laughs> you know trucks. double door refrigerators, without padding, <laughs> without our padding, listeners. and tight silk shorts and helmets. Um. Uh. Yeah. But sadly, nothing went wrong. <laughs> Well, apart from the fact that Australia lost, nothing went wrong. Apart from that, but that's was that wasn't that was just the norm. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, can I can quickly? I'm going to jump back a little bit moment because after after I recorded with uh, Mark Toyer, I had meetings up in Brisbane and I hooked up with Mark, and it was fantastic to. Uh, although I so was you got to film with them, I right? wasn't you know super hands on, but I filmed a little bit with the Epic, and it was really good to with the Dragon. It was terrific to get to really. Um, get a little bit hands-on with it and really see, because, as I say, the problem for Mark, uh, showing the tests and showing the results, it's really hard to, when, when you have a camera that takes, as I said, takes blinding, you know, takes blindingly high contrast and turns it into a normal-looking image, how, how do you then post a normal-looking image and say, wow, this is amazing? You know, it's a very hard... It's definitely one of those had to be their kind of experiences. You know, you had to see the light and be all standing around with a, with a group of guys who've shot a lot of Epic and all standing around and go, yep, wouldn't see that with Epic. Yep, you wouldn't get that with Epic. There was a ton of moments like that. And we happened to, like, Mark was just being this, you know, weather whisperer and we just had this incredible, you know, that those sort of very rare moments where you have blinding perfect clear sunset sneaking under super dark clouds so it was like really contrasty like there was no sort of ambience in the sky whatsoever yet you had thumping sunset coming you know down the lens almost so it was like really extreme tests and clouds were backlit and you could see detail in clouds that were like a complete whiteout by eye it was definitely very interesting to to have been to do to have done the you know the should have been there kind of moment because that was re- it was it was very hard from the tests to really appreciate particularly the night stuff night stuff was amazing it was quite uh, astounding I, I can actually only tangentially agree or, or rather know what you're talking about because I've taken shots 
at a very high ISO mm. on a still camera, mm. and they've looked more lit than I knew that they were. And because the noise is so low, it's almost impossible to know that they didn't look that lit when I when I was standing there. Yeah, yeah, it's that that thing that sort of thing like yeah, wow, you just you can't tell how dark it was. Oh, look, gee, you didn't you know because it was I couldn't you know I couldn't see my hand in front of my face kind of thing. Yeah. And yeah, until you have that sort of frame of reference, it's it's just not as impressive. Uh, the tests aren't as impressive, uh, so I can I can kind of vaguely understand the CML complaining, and I think definitely. But, but not going back to that, but just generally yeah. speaking, would you say then that you just echoed Mark's sentiments about being impressed by the? Yeah, I'm more impressed. I was hoping to be, and I unfortunately didn't really do much of what I wanted to. I didn't really do much a being between the 5k 6k to really the field of view is what I was my main oh, yeah, interest course, was yeah. the dynamic range was a bonus yeah but the that that was the, clearly the the most uh, impressive part I would definitely echo what what he absolutely what he says I think there's probably more I mean this is early I mean it's early in terms of the color science that we're seeing probably a couple of stops into the highlights and a stop or two into the lowlights. But um, I think, you know, you can only imagine with, with future firmware and, and uh, developments with, with uh, Red CineX that we're going to see a lot more than that. And, you know, the uh, maybe the disappointments in, in the blogs were from that there'd been the earlier hype of those dy- dynamic range sort of graduated tests that were showing 18, 19 stops, and now it's only doing two or three stops beyond what an Alexa, only doing two or three stops beyond the current, you know, gold standards of digital cameras. What I read today is that they were going to rate the new dragon at 200 yeah which seems like an odd number yeah but you could shoot much much higher yeah well it's interesting because um that's where mark was sort of pinging it as a as a rating i mean he wasn't doing terribly scientific tests but he was that's what he was parking it there and then because there's a lot more i mean he was he was able to then crank up because you can just crank up the iso the iso you know Sensitivity, yeah. Basically, do the you know, in, it's all metadata. You're not sort of changing anything, but there's okay, just so much the information that, right? in the, there. The, the risk of parking it, the advantage of parking it at 200, if notionally you could park it at 1200, mm. is that you're going to have a lot of, um, you're going to look at through the lens, and it's going to seem darker than it would if it was up at 1200. Agreed. So you're yes. going to open up the iris more because yes. you're going to want to let more light in which means that the danger of parking at 200 ISO, given that it's metadata and it doesn't really matter where you do it from a, mm. from a technical point of view, mm. is that you will let in more light than you should and you'll clip your highlights because when you go back to 800, 1200, you'll actually discover that um, everything's a lot brighter, but, oh my gosh, I didn't have enough headroom for my highlights, so they mm. never survived the, the capture. And the other problem, going the other way, if you set it too high, is that, in fact, it's having to crank out in the darks and create noise. Yeah. And um, so I think the logic runs like this. If I put it at 200, I'm going to, now with more dynamic range, not have the highlights clipping. Yes. But I'm guaranteed of having low noise imagery because in no way, shape or form am I stretching my blacks. Yes. And it's how those blacks and or mids and upper blacks look when you do stretch it out. It is very 
it's an interesting it's not an interesting look that's the wrong way to say it it start, it start, sounds a bit like it's doing kind of like tone mapped which it's not but there is there's a little bit of that 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 interesting hdr feel to it particularly at nights if you shoot a lot of nights oh my god it's you're just going to be blown away it is it is the thing is if i was shooting it it's how it looks when you stretch it out as well yeah. not just what you get what i want to do is have enough sensitivity that i can shoot without having to push the iso too hard yeah um for the noise reasons and 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 obviously mathematically you're going to have more noise in the blacks than you ever have in the whites simply because at that level you've got not much light coming in you see it and yeah. so incidental it's more visible. yeah like literally noise plus or minus a bit makes a lot plus or minus 1 when you're at 1 makes a lot more difference than plus or minus 1 when you're up at 100 mm. right mm. it's 100% different down the bottom and it's 1% difference up the top so so that's it's it's a noise reducing strategy only only that only works if you have highlight room to move yeah now as far as this tone mapping thing goes that is a real issue that i think a lot of people get their head around um and it's it's awkward because uh, tone mapping itself is a look i hate out of hdrs that really yeah it doesn't it's it's wrong just to, to call it that and i, I mean it I, is a tone I, mapping you're absolutely right it just isn't the tone mapping look that we've no, come to associate with there's those nothing fake HDR. going on it you're just seeing detail you're seeing more information you're seeing it's it you're not used to especially at night it's not necessarily used to seeing so much the shot that did it for me was that shot of the car where i could see in the window and see what was on the on the uh, dials yeah. of the car. Yes, right. And I could see beyond to the front uh, bonnet. Yeah. And that neither the bonnet was clipped nor the dials pitch black. Yeah. Again, it's one of those had to be there sort of moments that you really only appreciate once you've sort of seen it by eye. And if you've got a good sort of mental back catalogue of how you know an epic will treat a scene it's all the more stunning because you know, okay, I know that I would not be getting this information with, with the epic by a, far, by, a, by a reasonable margin, not just a stop here and a stop there. It's yeah, this is sort of segueing into our next interview, which is um, the one about uh, the SLRs which I'm going to come to. So yeah. here's the thing, though. I actually think what's really significant is to not lose sight of the fact that I probably don't want to be producing uh, final imagery that has an enormous amount of tone mappy um, stuff because by to a, by a certain logic, that's a fairly non-contrasty, non-dramatic shot, right? Mm. Like, I mean, one of the things that makes a shot dramatic is obviously dramatic lighting. And so if I had, you know, dark shadows and, and really interesting edge light, that would be a dramatic shot. And if I suddenly start seeing into those shadows completely and and... I could literally have a shot that's sort of less um, dramatic than than what I had before. Yeah. Now, I think what you want is the flexibility to be able to grade anywhere to get the shot that you want. But we are so in a world now where we shouldn't confuse the look with the technology that enables the look. Because I actually think you would crush a lot of those epic shots. But that doesn't make it irrelevant. Yeah. That you no, absolutely. The move. It's giving you the information to play with. I think it's... it's it's uh, all, what we're seeing is the camera coming closer to giving you what the eye sees or what the brain's interpretation of what the eye sees, which is you do see a lot of information. You do see a lot of graduations, a lot of shades, a lot of, you know, you just see it's, it's a, just a much more information. There's just a lot more, um, you know, information in there. And I think uh, that's what we're starting to see. We're starting to see it 
you know, we see uh, people say it a lot. It's, oh, it sees things like my eye does. I mean, Mark said that. We all sort of said that every time we start to see this higher dynamic range creeping in. It does start to look, and that doesn't mean it looks wrong. Um, no. It, uh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's just, it's just what more information looks like. So anyway, I think we'll time will tell as the as as the camera develops, as the color science develops, and we all get used to it. But definitely, you know, this is not just a little. This is not a point a dot a point point zero upgrade. This is not a this is not a a, a minor bump. This is I think it's it's significant. I wish the center was bigger, but hey, you know. Well, let's get into that's this, another thing. Let's get into the first of our two interviews this week uh, with Kirk Tuck. Now I want to sort of set this up because I think it's really interesting. Um, Kirk is a guy who's shooting uh, professionally as a photographer and also then moved, as many people did, into shooting video. So just to give you some background, um, and, and I've never met Kirk. He's not like a personal friend or anything, but I, I like his work, um, having watched it from afar. The thing about uh, that transition is that, you know, he was a still photographer that used flashlights, right, as in the sense that you'd have a modeling light on a professional flash uh, like on a big giant softbox kind of yeah. thing, and then it bang, the flash goes off, you get the shot. He moved from that to using LED lighting so that he would actually have a constant light because the cameras became more sensitive and that's what he kind of wanted. And then he sort of went, well, okay, well, it's a very short jump from that to doing video because I've already lit the actor, the model, the sort of president of the company. Now I could get those portrait shots for the annual general report, but I could also shoot video with him and and did all that. So, so that's his background, professional photographer, been working um, in Austin and is really good at his craft. He's not an amateur or a blogger getting, doing clickbait. He's a, he's a sensible guy. Okay, now he observed, as a number of us did, some stuff that's been published over the last few months by companies or rather research organizations uh, picking up on what's been happening with sales in the camera industry. So um, there's an organization in Japan which is... Um, the Camera and Imaging Products Association, and it published some statistics showing a really dramatic fall um, between, well, basically in uh, 2013, in uh, sales of both SLRs and uh, point-and-shoots. Now, the point-and-shoot stuff, uh, in a blog post that Kirk did, he points out, well, obviously, that's pretty much, you can put that down to smartphones. People have smartphones, so what's the incentive of carrying a point-and-shoot when they seem to be getting such good quality out of these uh, camera phones? Plus, the camera phone does so much more than what you get out of a point and shoot in terms of being able to post it on the net uh, process it put looks on it and stuff SLR is a bit more complicated um, and the plummet was literally from like 1.5 million units um, a month down to like 800,000 in a, in a matter of like just a few quarters and, that's and that a, doesn't really relate to any particular GFC or anything it's just no because we're now talking yeah December to January yeah. February March of um, of 13 and these you know had risen, obviously, after the GFC caused that, you know, delay in kind of uh, disposable spending. But nevertheless, you've got this huge drop uh, in volume. And it was quite alarming, right? Like a 20%, I think it's 18.5% um, decrease year over year. And why would that be the case? Why would you have such a dramatic drop in the SLR or the DSLR market? And he um, posted a blog post on his blog, which is separate to his company site, um, which is called the Visual Science Lab. I saw that and I just thought it was just like such an interesting um, perspective on stuff that I thought we'd talk to him. And I should say he got a huge reaction to it. So much he had to post a following blog post to clarify that he wasn't saying uh, photography was over or that it sucked. He was just pointing out as a professional photographer 
that basically, Jace, he thinks that there's a bubble that's burst, or a couple of bubbles, but if we just stick with the SLR mm. market for a second, a bubble has burst, um, as you'll hear in this interview, which is basically the bubble of people that kind of got into SLRs because they were coming almost from a computery tech background. It was a really interesting area. It was obviously cheap all of a sudden. It didn't cost a lot of money to take digital shots. Mm. And and it it is, to this current decade, what... Hi-Fi was in the 80s <laughs> to guys and what PCs and Macs were in the 90s, which yeah. is the kind of thing that people are hobbying around at fairly high disposable income levels uh, to get the most out of it, to learn about it, to do stuff. But at some point, and he thinks we've passed that, uh, they just went, you know what, I've kind of done it now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There is no, Apple is not worrying about making supercomputers anymore. They'd sort of, up until not long ago, and even with the Mac Pro, they weren't really sort of lauding about how... That was, if you remember the days of the Mac Pro, they were like... you know, Trillion comp- megaflops, yeah. Yeah, they were making a huge thing about this is the fastest computer ever yep. made, and this is, you know... And yes, I guess with... Uh, everyone's trying to have the next sort of quantum leap, so to speak, even with even in hi-fi in the 70s, late 70s, or quadraphonic, or any of that sort of stuff. Everyone's trying to find the next... The next Big, the next really good sound, or the next, the next, the next leap, you know, which you know, 3D, isn't it? Blu-ray kind of was. Supercomputers, everyone's kind of over that, you know. The megapixel race for cameras is is done. Everyone, a MacBook Air is, you know, is way more computer than most people would generally use day to day. And uh, yeah, the iPhone is 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 a completely satisfying camera for for a lot of a lot of punters and that's sort of killed again killed off the happy snappy so there is no real and as you'll hear in this interview he makes another really good point which i think is i mean it's kind of cruel but it's true for a lot of people they were seeking uh praise gratification feedback you mm. know that in the early days uh, i'm talking early days now of digital photography i'm talking like when this podcast started maybe yes people were taking photos and posting them on Flickr, and they were going, oh wow that's a really amazing photo and he said these days there's you know it's so fast for any cool photo to be replicated repeated and copied mm. and you don't get any feedback anymore you know you post up a bunch of really cool shallow depth shots and everyone's like yep okay it's been done yeah absolutely oh no look i'm everyone's looking for i am looking for the next Look, what I do, what a lot of people do is, is very, you know, is rapidly becoming commonplace. And, uh, you know, the Vimeo groundlings are, are are catching up and it's becoming harder to stand out from the crowd and look for the, for the next big look. And, you know, I remember when sliders first started appearing <laughs> yes. and it was, you know, it was considered a good idea to post a Vimeo of a shot of wildflowers shot on sliders. Because yes. look how cool that looks. <laughs> yes. um, anyway, so let's hear this interview and then we'll come back because I, I want to get your opinion as to where you think it's going. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, Kirk, you're in uh, Austin, Texas, right? Right, I'm in Austin, Texas. I've been here since I went here to go to school in uh, 1974. So you run a uh, particularly uh, interesting photographic blog, but that's not your full-time job. You actually work as a professional <laughs> photographer. You know, I think I may be the last traditional full-time corporate photographer in Austin, Texas who's still working 100% as a photographer. Great. Isn't that strange? (laughs) So one of the things that uh, I was interested in is uh, that, in fact, in your work, you do, of course, both stills photography and uh, and now video work as well. Um, 
and you do that obviously for the same kind of clients, which is that sort of merging that we've seen between stills photography and the extension into uh, being able to use a lot of that same gear, lighting, and of course, um, client skills in uh, in the new moving framework. Right. You know, it's interesting because most people presume that photographers are just getting into video now because of the cameras, the DSLRs, having the video capability and whatnot. But my background is that I, I worked in an advertising agency back in the 1980s. And at the time, we did a lot of television commercials. And, of course, we didn't do them on video back then. We did them on 16-millimeter film or 35-millimeter film. But the basics, you know, the editing, the lighting, all those things um, – pretty much have stayed the same. So I actually came into it with the advantage of having done um, a number of television commercials as a creative director um, with really good crews and, and watching the process. Uh, I was a still photographer at the time, so you know I knew what I was looking at. And uh, it translates beautifully into the current milieu of, of video. Um, so I, I had a little experiential head start on some of my um, local competitors. Well, let's discuss this blog post that you did. And just to set it up a little, um, I don't know which numbers that you were going from, but let me just quote from the last numbers that I had, which was from the uh, Camera Imaging Products Association, which is a Japanese organization. Of course, most cameras come from Japan. And uh, right. so the numbers that I was going from and looking at were published um, earlier this year and showed a dramatic uh, plummet in basically... Uh, DSLR, so digital uh, cameras as we know them, um, from heights where they were doing something like uh, sort of 1.6, 1.4 million units a month down to sort of under a million, 800,000. And then similarly, uh, a large um, drop in the uh, mirrorless and uh, sort of point-and-shoot market. And that's been reflected in a number of other surveys. And, and you picked up on this, and, and in your blog post, you proposed a couple of uh, comments on that. Um, so what, what was your takeout from this sudden drop? It seemed like, I think you referred to it as going off a cliff, drop in sales. Right. Well, you know, it, if it was a product of a market that was getting saturated, I think the curve in, or, or the declining curve of sales would have been a lot more gentle. But the fact that, you know, year over year we saw a 43.5% drop in mirrorless cameras and compact cameras and that sort of thing, and an 18.5% drop in, uh, you know, worldwide, on DSLRs, it, it's so dramatic and it's so quick. And, you know, I think there are two things that are driving it. And, and one of them, you know, is, is basically cell phones. I mean, nobody can, can deny that. Um, but essentially, I, I think that we've hit the point where camera um, output, cam, you know, the, the basic content is so ubiquitous that now all we do is consume it like food. It's not uh, something that's made to withstand the test of time or be there for a long amount of time or have an inherent value or an inherent content value in itself. Uh, it's just a disposable item now. Um, so I, I think those are the two things is that we've, we've kind of hit this wall where everybody looks and they say, oh my God, there are 10 billion images out there why would I ever take another photograph of the Eiffel Tower? Why would I ever take another photograph of the Coliseum, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera? Um, it's because we are visually saturated at this point, and I think that we've come to some sort of cultural understanding that the basis of photography has changed. Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of aspects there. Let's hit that point-and-shoot market first, which is so rough that, in fact, several of the um, you might call secondary uh, equipment uh, manufacturers are actually sort of leaving the market. So Olympus, I think, is is one, and uh, and I think there are others that are just sort of literally walking away from that point-and-shoot segment. And that's that segment is affected by two things, I think. Firstly, um, there's the whole idea of whichever camera you happen to have with you is the best camera in the world. And right. people tend to take their phones with them, so they nearly always have right. a phone. Um, well, but, and the phones have gotten so much better. I mean, yeah. if you look at the iPhone 5, the 8 megapixels in that camera are really good, and the processing algorithms have gotten really good. So even if you are inherently a bad photographer, your phone's going to step in and help you quite a bit. Uh, so it, it may be that they're getting just as good of photographs from their phones as they would have with the generation of point two cameras four or five years ago. But I think the other thing that you know is probably a factor there is this whole idea of the uh, computational photography aspects of going on. I mean, you basically have a computer and a camera, and the computer is connected to the internet, and so there's a lot of things that are going on there with that photo. For a start, there's the immediacy. I mean, I've seen professional photographers pull out an iPhone to take a photo simply because they wanted to post immediately from what they were doing right. and the time it takes to get the card out of the camera and put it in a laptop, connect to the internet, mm -hmm. you know, it was just easier just to take a happy snap on the on the phone, even though they had a uh, Canon 5D Mark III sitting there on a tripod, you know, firing away. Oh, absolutely. Um, well, do you know what's happening in the, in the Samsung space? You know, with the Android camera? Have you, have you kept up with that? Uh, I, I thought I had, but tell me what you're referring to. Okay, so Samsung's about to um, introduce a, a camera called the Galaxy NX. Interchangeable lens, uh, electronic viewfinder, got a five-inch uh, screen on the back, and that camera is the first one that's Wi-Fi enabled and 4GS cell phone enabled. And so you can actually stream from that camera as you're shooting. So it's the ultimate expression of of, you know, what, what do you do as a camera manufacturer when you realize that, you know, iPhones and smartphones are all about instantaneous uh, access to the images by third parties, right? You create a camera that emulates what the cell phones do. And that camera's coming on the market, I think, in September. Yeah, because, I mean, so it is kind of bizarre, isn't it, that uh, I, on certain um, high-end digital SLRs, I don't have any kind of GPS, I don't have any um, tagging right. of where those photos are taken, a whole bunch of stuff that you wouldn't even think of in a cell phone market as not existing. Right, absolutely. And, but you know, we've seen more uh, innovation in the cell phone market in terms of, you know, cameras and apps and all that sort of thing than we've seen in the digital camera market in the 12 or 13 years that digital cameras have actually existed as a separate marketplace. Yes, it is extraordinary how that app market leads to massive innovation through just sheer numbers. Absolutely. Well, because there's so much return on it, and they've got to differentiate the products from each other. But if we leave that point-and-shoot market for a second and look at the uh, DSLR market, which is you know, theoretically obviously suffering from some of these aspects, but by the same token should be able to produce vastly better pictures than any um, iPhone can, I think you also right. assert in your piece that, to a certain extent, we've hit a point where good enough is kind of good enough. Yeah, I think there's two things going on. One is that you know most of our use for photographs is migrated to the web from large print, and so we're working with much smaller files, and uh, it's routine now to go back to your studio and fix them. 
um, you know, in the early days of digital, it was, you know, it was quite a feat to get something that really worked well that you could go to print with. Um, but we really don't do that much uh, print stuff anymore. It's, it's mostly web-oriented. So, so, yeah, good enough is a big sticking point. But I think one of the things that's driving the numbers, uh, quite frankly, is that a lot of people who never uh, embraced photography as a hobby during the film days because it was messy, expensive, hard to do, uh, embraced digital photography because they had IT backgrounds and it was a natural synergy for them to embrace a digital product that they could then take into their computer platform and manipulate. And they didn't have a background in the fine art aspect of photography. Uh, they didn't understand the history of photography, but they had these metrics like how sharp could you make it? How many megapixels did you have? Um, you know, and, and how much post-production could you do? Kind of as a, as a proof of theory or proof of um, capability. And nobody had an end product in mind, but in the early days of digital, they could throw something on the web, and if they were able to master the technical issues, everyone would say, oh, that was fabulous, great capture, wonderful. But when everybody became privy to the same technical fixes, uh, it stopped being fun for them because everyone could prove the same hypothesis. Everybody could be equally proficient technically. And since they weren't driving to an aesthetic uh, endpoint, it didn't matter. You know, that part didn't matter to them. And I think when everybody became equally able in terms of producing good files, the excitement left the market for them, and they've moved on to something else to test their metrics with. So it's, it's I think a, that's part of the decline. Yeah, it's an interesting concept, isn't it, that one of the things that was driving photography was this sort of desperate need for feedback from others, and that yeah. on the web you could get great feedback instantly, but at some point that's saturated. And, and I think, um, you know, we have a thousand silky waterfalls on long exposures and a million HDRs exactly. of, uh, and uh, time lapse, and there's sort of like no, no mountain left to climb. In fact, I think you equated it to a video game where if, sort of most people have hit um, the high level and kind of right. just don't want to keep playing the game over and over. When everybody became a wizard and they stopped being able to get points, life points, they exit the game and they go look for something else. And I really do think that if you look at the numbers, it's not professionals who are driving the DSLR market. You know, we're less than probably a tenth of a percent of the total DSLR market. There aren't that many, you know, full-time professionals out there. The people who were really driving that market weren't the traditional family documenters. They were tech guys who enjoyed playing with technical toys and gadgets. And when it became ubiquitous and easy, you know, the, the challenge was over. The game was over. And I think that the game ended for most people uh, probably in the middle of 2012, and that's why we're seeing these numbers. That's why it fell off the cliff. Yeah, and you were basically saying that that megapixel, 24 megapixel sensor limit was a kind of a key turning point when people kind of went, okay, well, I was okay at 16 and 24 didn't buy me much. Well, yeah, I actually think that, yeah, it was 16 is, is, I think, in most people's minds, the sweet spot. And when everyone was able to access a 24 megapixel sensor because the price dropped to $600, they could compare the two and go, oh, marginal improvement, not for the money, and gosh, I'm done. Somebody who commented on your visual science lab, and I can't credit them because they're anonymous, said that it was, I think, uh, comparable with the hi-fi craze of the 70s and 80s when people were always 
trying yeah. to get the right cables and the right whatever to and then that became the PC wars of the 90s and that this was just the latest in the kind of uh, let's face it, often male-dominated <laughs> tech craze. Yeah. Um, Male-technical-dominated. Technical-dominated. Yeah. You know, it's, it's amazing because that's an exact analogy from my point of view. It's like, we have mastered this new technology. What's next? You know, that's, that's the mindset. We've mastered the technology. What's next? Okay, and but somebody made the point that, you know, we hadn't, that we hadn't mastered everything yet. I, I think they're absolutely wrong. I think we're at the point where you know, nobody's going to see a difference until we have 8K computer screens in front of us. Yeah, which brings me to the point of lighting, because the biggest difference between what we've discussed and certainly the work that you've published on your non-blog site, your professional site that uh, uh -huh. uh, is your work, is is the quality of light as opposed to just being able to shoot in low quantities of light, which is an nice right. problem. Well, you know that was the most interesting thing to me is everybody's rushing to get these cameras that would shoot at 12,000 ISO or 50,000 ISO or whatever. And, and it really is all about the craft of lighting. You know, it's not that we just need enough photons to make the picture show up, but the direction of light has an emotional impact. The, you know, the, the contravailing uh, light from say a backlight has an emotional context. And without those things, the pictures are just, documents. I mean, basically, they could be taken by um, robotic cameras hooked to the wall. Uh, it's only our ability to craft the light and design the light that makes us really good photographers. That, that was always the dividing line between the people who were in it just to play the game and do the metric and the people who really cared about the images, who really cared about the content, was an understanding or an appreciation of the light. Well, look, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for uh, taking time to talk and also really enjoyed your uh, blog post. So your blog post okay. is at uh, visualsciencelab.blogspot.com. Is that right? That's right. And, uh, and of course, your main site uh, is, I'm going to say, I'm going to get it wrong, aren't I? It's, <laughs> no. It's <laughs> dot com. It is, right. Sorry, I couldn't find it quick enough. No, that's okay. No, that's fine. Um, that's cool. So I appreciate you taking time to talk to us, and thanks so much. Thanks so much for the call, Mike. I All appreciate right. it. So the next big thing, what is the next big thing? I mean, I think definitely, I mean, where do you go from, I mean, no one really cares much about the, the, as I say, the megapixel race is kind of dead. Most people don't. Well, especially if you're posting stuff on the web. No like. one super really cares. I mean, no, no one's like raving about the fact that, say, Dragon is going from 5K to 6K. It's more what else, the other stuff it does. It's the largest sensor or it's, it's dynamic range. Um, uh, Canon, uh, no doubt, are, are looking for the next thing. They are looking and pursuing, and I can't wait for them to see what their movie's going to be. They are uh, reported to be... A, close to purchasing or in talks of purchasing a, a European, I can only presume it's something like Leaf, going to produce, purchase perhaps a, um, a medium format uh, company. Uh, that'd be quite interesting to see what they're going to do with that, particularly if they start to get into larger format uh, with live view modes. So we start to, I think uh, I'm very interested to see what's going to happen with even larger sensors, the medium format look, to be able to take that medium format 
uh, take the medium format look, which is beautiful for stills, and is and is a very different look from uh, just full frame or or standard, you know, Super Thirty Five imagery, and uh, see how we can adapt that and what that's going to. I mean, we've already seen sixty five, seventy mil look uh, for. Uh, you know, it would like the master and plenty of other, you know, stuff of, of the past, super Panavision stuff of the past. So many more imagery looks drastically different from um, from so, Super Thirty Five. So let me ask you that. But so, it is not as big as this larger medium format. So the Leaf is Israeli, by the way. Leaf, I thought they were European. Okay. okay. Um. Anyway, you're probably right. You, you would know. But um. So do you think that if I was able to buy, well, no, you can't, that's a bad example. You were able to buy a medium format SLR, yes. for want of a better term. Yes, I would that, buy it. Well, those things are bloody expensive. Yeah, but imagine they weren't, imagine we had a 5D Mark II mm. type event where yes. you have a big format digital camera that wasn't ridiculously expensive because the 5D Mark II was expensive but not you know, insanely expensive. Yes, it was, it was the start of the I'm going to own my own cameras and do this myself sort of deal. Yes, what absolutely. imagery would you get out of that that you wouldn't get out of shooting f 1.2? Well, again, it's the same. It's the same difference between. Uh, uh, I mean, a 50 mil is a 50 mil, regardless of what it's on. It's 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 getting that larger field of view. It's being able to shoot. Being able to shoot. A um, widen shadow, a wide, yeah, a wider, a wider shot with the sh- the shallow depth of field of a, of a, a you know, of a, of a tighter shot on another camera. It's getting it's getting shallower depth on wider lenses and being able to shoot wider and have and have drop off. So it's 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 being able to shoot landscape stuff and have and have and have drop off, you know, or to be able to stop stop down you know to be able to stop down and still see see and, and get the better part of your lenses but still and still have still have the ability to have drop off you know so to have that sharpness yet still so let me be the voice of the person that's driving in their car listening just wanting to clarify saying shut up if i had shut up. no not that voice <laughs> not that voice that's the voice <laughs> in your head um if i have a high megapixel camera I don't have any problem with blowing it up. That used to be the thing about mid-format, right? You could mm. blow it up better because it didn't have grain structure and we had super 35, sorry, 35 millimeter film had grain structure. You went to a big, more, more mid-format, you got a cleaner there because it was so much bigger. Mm-hmm. But I don't think I have that problem right now because I've got this really high megapixel that's just ridiculously thick. Yeah. So... No, it's, it's not about the resolution. I mean, the next, because, you know, I mean... As you say, most of the, as he says, most of the stuff is being viewed on the web. No one cares. The resolution is is gonna is taking the back back burner. It's about where what's does that more fix it in this? Uh, well, that is probably the next the next uh, leap. Really, I'm looking to see what this the next nice look is. And uh, uh, stuff I'm seeing on air, and especially some spots lately, shot on anamorphic, and clients seem to be quite happy to do the two three five crop, do some heavy cropping to get that beautiful. Um, you know, a nice landscape, but that's not that's not completely um, necessary. But yes, yeah, super uh, anamorphic is a beautiful look if it's if it's done done right. It can be incredibly filmic, and it can still and that doesn't mean it makes it fake. It makes it, it can add a beautiful realism to things or an honesty uh, for some reason. It makes it less anything that makes. I'm talking, I guess, about advertising, but. Uh, it adds a, it adds a level of beauty to anything, you know. I think it's definitely 
changes the way the subconsciously just the look of the theatrical work but also adds a real level of realism to uh, advertising work as well and yeah i i i I would love some more options beyond the moment the current option for either of those is alexa 4x3 with um you know, with with PL or anamorphic glass or or Panavision mount glass, all of it fairly expensive, all of it uh, uh, sort of optical unobtainium and and <laughs> expensive. So I the the next major sort of five D kind of leap will be the anamorphic anamorphic options for for full frame or or um. Or a larger sensor altogether, going to like market, medium format, going beyond, going going to the 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 the, the six seven, um, the 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 red six seven that we never got. You, you you would think the next thing was having a SLR anamorphic, wouldn't you? Like I mean, yeah. like just having anamorphic lenses that you yes. could whack on. Exactly, absolutely, because f- f- full frame sensor is well 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 larger than. Than um, Alexa four three sensor, yeah, yeah. Epic's getting there. It's about halfway. It's getting close to the size of the uh, um, the Alexa four three sensor. <coughs> but uh, yeah, so we're either doing spherical big leap in sensor size, or some more obtainable uh, anamorphic options for 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 SLRs or yeah, another four by three, another four by three style chip. But again, you know, we can't. You know, careful what you wish for. The more accessible this stuff is, the easier the stuff it is to get. Then the more people start to with it, and then, you know, as uh, in the words of in of Brad Bird, when everyone's uh, super, no one is. Isn't that right? <laughs> am I quoting? Am I quoting, quoting The Incredibles correctly? You know, when everything's yeah, amazing, yeah. nothing is in a way. Yeah. You know, that's suddenly. Sorry, I was just laughing, and I, <laughs> I had the mic switched off. The 5D look is, um, you know, it becomes commonplace and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, meh, next thing. Uh, yeah, I guess for me that the look that is that next thing, the thing that is that at the moment is the distressed look, right? I mean... Um, what, like the Instagram look? No, 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 no. I mean like the distressed as in, you know, dog shit lenses, optics, yeah, harsh. Yeah. Yes, that, that's that's part of it, which lifted, I think is it's subconsciously um, what anamorphic's doing a little bit. If you look at... People are quite happy to shoot with like the older Lomos and the Crystal Expresses and, and, and bringing stuff out of the arc. And Panavision themselves have just uh, launched a, um, not anamorphic, but uh, they've just launched a whole bunch of rehoused uh, lenses. I think they've got 20 and about to make even more sets uh, around the world of uh, spherical, um, I think, I'm sure they, I'm sure they, what they call them. It's sort of like a basically a retro set, you know, taking older glass and rehousing them. Um, did, did, did so think, even Panavision themselves are, are, are on board with with this you, bringing back character and bringing back some, uh, you know, which is going to segue very flaws. nicely into our next interview. Um, uh, well, sorry, not our next interview, our next next week's interview um, over the Jobs film because uh, uh, we're going to have uh, Ross Carpenter on discussing. He actually went back into Panavision's sort of vault and picked out these old lenses to get that kind of early look for the early part of Jobs. That's coming up on next week's show. But uh, did you see the thing that Dogshit Optics have done when they've got their rat look, external finishes? So not only have they got the lens producing this kind of retro thing. Oh, they're doing external. But they, they basically reckon that they've taken the uh, 
the uh, flux capacitor to the DeLorean and gone 50 years into the future to bring back one of their own lenses that they threw in a river yesterday. And um, (laughs) they're getting these incredibly look like rusty, you know, you would think that they wouldn't even turn because they're so distressed. Right um, from the rat rod style. If you if you go if you don't if you're not familiar with that um, that look, it is it's awesome. Even just do a simple Google image search of rat rod, and it is an awesome. It's an I love that uh, I love that look. Riveted, rough, degraded, rusted. Mm-hmm. Exactly that thrown in the thrown in the river kind of look. It's 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 astonishingly awesome. Uh, so they're applying that to lenses as well. Yeah, think. so that'd be the lens you pull out on set that would really cause the agency to have a heart. Well, I wonder if they, they're they just doing that for the housings, though. It'd be interesting yeah, yeah, just to do that with the whole lens. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, so that it actually shoots it shoots different rather than just looks different on the outside. Okay, I'll, I'll include a picture uh, in the thing because it's just very funny. Yeah. I mean, it's just so looks like... It, it really looks like it is just been in the bottom of the shed next to the fertilizer for a decade or two i have not seen that but uh i'm sure it's hysterical yeah in fact i'm going to send you a picture as we speak okay so uh do you want to set up our next uh interview in the red room we're very excited about this because it's uh really uh extremely early to be having this uh chat yes absolutely so we're talking with uh, john seal acs and i guess asc um who uh, shot man? Let me look at his. Let's just do the IMD back okay. catalogue. Let's let's just pick three films. I'm going to start with okay. Witness. Yes, One Witness, which you stole gorgeous. my thunder in a way. That was that is an astounding film. If you've not seen it, beautiful, beautiful, uh, beautiful film. Amazingly, um, not just photographically, but it's just structurally and performances, and it's. It's thrilling, it's amazing, it's emotive, it's romantic, it's outstandingly shot, it's beautiful. And, um, well, let's see, I'll pick one. Uh, I'm going to pick, oh my God, some of these these are crazy. Um, You're not going with Harry Potter, I know that. No, no, no. no. I'll give you a second one. The English Patient, just beautifully I don't think I've ever seen The English Patient all the way through. I've seen some of it. But uh, okay, but but any criticism you have of it isn't of the cinematography. Uh, no, no, I mean that, that's that was part of its uh, charm at the time. I think. Uh, let's see. Just edit this pause out. <laughs> no, we're not going to edit it out. Okay, it's, I'll give you a few more to choose from. Gorillas in the Mist again. Yeah. Gorgeously shot. Dead Poets Society. Great, great, uh, great work there. Um, he did Lorenzo's Oil, which of course was. Uh, um, by uh, George Miller, who of course is the director of uh, Fury Road. Um, yep, the paper with uh, Ron Howard, which is a um, I like that one. Rain Man, At Rain Man, yes. Mosquito Coast, which is a favourite of mine because my dad was art director on it, and um, yeah, so it's it's an amazing back catalogue, great stuff. And uh, this is uh, you spoke to him after he did a fantastic presentation at the SMPTE show in Sydney. Yeah, uh, basically talking about the production of Fury Road, which has been a long, a long winding road, so to speak, going from development, a uh, long, uh, long-winded development of 3D cameras, which were eventually scrapped, and they went uh, 2D, and um, 
uh, and it just the the trials and tribulations of shooting the Namibian desert with with dust and uh, where basically seventy five percent of the film occurs inside the cab of a truck uh, on the road, and it's a terrific um, a terrific heads up and hysterically funny heads up from a, a guy whose his background is well steeped in film, but who is fully embracing digital. And he's uh, very uh, flippant about, that, yeah. about, I that was about really, the difference. I thought that was really interesting because, you know, he's 70 and he's earned the right to do whatever he bloody wants. And he's totally, you know, just spectacularly good at, at his talent. But in no way is he a Luddite, oh, back in the day of film and, you know, you kids, uh, you know, and it's all yeah. much better back then. No, he's, he completely embraces it. Uh, in fact, it's... It's frightening. This interview frightens me as to how much he embraces digital, um, as you'll hear uh, as we uh, cross to it now. You are entering the Red Room. Thanks so much for joining us, John. We really do appreciate it. Um, so this is a, a really interesting film, and of course we're really looking forward to seeing it when it's done. But uh, interestingly, you started by shooting not in Australia but in Nubia. Can you explain what some of the challenges were for shooting uh, in Africa? I think the biggest challenge for me was the fact that uh, Fury Road was going to be my first digital film. And much as I'd I'd shot plenty of uh, film negative films in the desert or jungles or under severe conditions, uh, I had never shot digital under severe conditions. So I was a bit worried about all of that. But I had a fantastic crew uh, of people together that had done that, had, had worked on it. With, with digital cameras in jungles, deserts, dry, heat, wet, moist, whatever. And they were ready and, and able to put together full precaution kits of rain covers, dust covers, even uh, heat covers to take the heat off the uh, cameras in the, in the middle of the day. So all of that uh, mechanical stuff was actually solved by a fantastic crew. So I guess we should ask the question, why Africa? Why not shoot in Australia? What, what did Africa give you, or visually, what were you looking for? It gave George, uh, our director, George Miller, it gave George the, the look of a planet after an, a, a massive post-apocalyptic uh, um, nightmare of some kind. We don't really know what that was. That has made the planet devoid of even one blade of grass. And the sad thing was that Australia was always going to be the location, and Broken Hill particularly, for Mad Max. But they had so much rain out there over three years that the wildflowers were a metre deep. And one of the funny stories is they went and talked to three old locals and said, well, how long will this clear back to Red Desert? And they all said, we don't know. We've never seen it that... um, luxuriant before in wildflowers. So George's obvious decision was he'd have to go somewhere that gave him just straight sand, rocks and no growth and that was Namibia. So that was a done deal as far as everybody was concerned. We just all went over there. They had already been there years before so they sort of knew where, what was there and what they could use. Um, so it was all pretty uh, much a formality really after that. So what sort of precautions or approach did you take just to make sure you didn't suffer from gear failure, given the heat and the dust and everything? I mean, how did you handle that? Once again, I leaned heavily on the great crew. 
uh, they put together all of that uh, preventative gear for whatever we could uh, work out might be a problem. Uh, and it worked, it worked. We had a few little glitches, nothing really serious at all over the length of the film. Uh, we were using a lot of new gear. We had uh, Aria, Aria Alexa M cameras, which had only been used on Skyfall previously. So we had those, but they all scrubbed up nicely. Um, so basically everything that our crew did in pre-production here in Sydney and took to Namibia um, worked very, very well for the entire time. So our actual uh, breakdowns or time loss through equipment uh, because of the atmosphere out there was minimal. Most of it was we just smashed them. <laughs> so you mentioned that it was digital. Why, why did you choose to shoot digital? Good question. Um, because I had, had never shot digital, I'd, I'd been reading obviously in the trade magazines about everybody's ideas and choices of cameras that they thought were best. Um, but the bottom line was, it, 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 I'm not really that technical. I love making films, I love operating, I love lighting, I love putting together the film. What we're shooting on isn't really of a great interest. As long as it does the job, it gives the director and myself the, the reproduction of, of the image that we're, we would like. Uh, I'm not worried about how it gets it. So I have always been also a, a Panavision man through the film years. And I just said, what's Panavision got? And they said, well, we've got Ari Alexis. And I said, well, let's get them. And you use other cameras too, right? I mean, you used uh, different cameras, for example, crash cams. Crash cam, we need a lot of crash cams and we weren't going to smash an Alexa every time we wanted a, an effect shot. So we looked into uh, a, a lot of um, uh, still cameras, video, uh, digital still cameras. And Canon, Nikon, Nikon and Olympus came to the fore. The little Olympus cameras were excellent. They got stabilisers built in and didn't seem to have too much of a rolling shutter problem. Uh, so we actually selected those in the initial instance for our crash cameras, and we got some very, very good results out of them. The, the only thought was that because it's a massive post uh, uh, picture, our, our visual effects boys were really complaining a little bit about getting the data out of the back of the Olympus. We also found that during in a crash situation, where there was a massive impact. We actually lost image after that, and even sometimes before it, it tended to wipe the chip. So George doesn't beat around the bush. He just said, well, use the Canon 5Ds. And the Canon 5Ds, with their data output, just proved to be a, a little bit better for them than the Nikon. Uh, we were in a little preference for, for the Nikon, but the Canon did the job better as far as the, the visual effects were concerned. So we opted for those, we went for those. And we didn't smash that many of them, but um, uh, there were quite a few suffered, but we got very, very good results out of them, I must say. So John, what were your lens choices? I fell back on my film lenses because they were compatible uh, to, to the cameras. Um, the, uh, the Canon lenses, we just, we used whatever lenses suited the particular shot we're after. Uh, on the Alexas, 
I've always had the 11 to 1, that great big zoom, and that worked wonderfully on the, uh, the uh, mainly on the pluses, the Alexa pluses. Um, and the little uh, M's were used inside the cabin of all the various vehicles. Because there's not much room, those little cameras were a godsend because they were only that big. We found, uh, our boys found in Los Angeles on shelves covered in dust, some fantastic little lenses that were refurbished by Panavision, put together and cleaned up and uh, sometimes slightly modified to suit our depth of field uh, situation. And they fitted onto the M's perfectly. So we had these great little 15 mil lenses. Um, otherwise, we just used whatever was available from Canon, but those were particularly made for us. The other uh, Alexa lenses, as I said, was the, the normal range of film uh, lenses that I would have used on um, any, any uh, film negative film. And John, stylistically, what sort of uh, style were you going for? Obviously, the original Mad Max, incredibly gritty. Um, what was the sort of look that you were it after? It is. The, 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 uh, the photography was more dependent on that we just shoot it because the DI and the post work is so... Um, explicit that almost every shot's going to be manipulated possibly in some way or form. So our edict was just shoot it. Continuity of light wasn't really a question. George knowing that he was going to cut the film very quickly meant that you didn't have time to analyse each shot and therefore work out that, wait a minute, this, this, the sun's come from over there and the next cuts are now over there. You didn't have time. The sun was out. That's all that you need to know. Uh, in the cutting between overcast and full sun isn't a, wasn't going to be a problem, I hope. Um, they're, they're problems that you will always have as a, as a cinematographer because that's your profession, is matching light, making it match so it's a lovely continuity of light um, but on this film no, the actual end result uh, controlled us in the execution of the imaging so that the edicts was, was don't worry about the continuity, it'll be cut too fast. The DI will also be an image that's possibly bent in some way, it could be increased contrast uh, the sharpness might be increased so it gets that crackly look to it. We could end up doing anything with it. That also will help to smooth out continuity lighting problems. Um, also, George knew that, that his post work would be so extensive that even lighting people at certain times uh, he felt wasn't needed to... Um, to correctly, if you know what I mean, that he, as we all know in a DI, you can you can brighten up the eyes and isolate certain areas and and control that. So he was prepared to do that. So that basically the shooting of the film in any situation, night, day, dawn, dusk, was in fact let's just shoot it and give the boffins in the in the back rooms enough negative, one might say to be able to then manipulate it into continuity. So what sort of uh, consideration or, or I guess, 
emphasis did you have to place on visual effects while filming? Well, they were on set the whole time, those boys, and we lent on them very heavily. We even uh, did a whole long night scene, day for night. Um, and that was a little bit of a knee trembler because, to be honest, I hadn't done day for night digitally. And uh, when, when our visual effects supervisors suggested that we overexpose at two stops, that was like, wait a minute, let's sit down, have a strong cup of coffee, talk about this, because that's sort of the exact reverse of what you do on a film negative. So my brain had to change everything quite um, uh, extensively between film and digital. And that was one of them. And this was all so that your exposure into your dark areas, when you print it down for the day for night, if in the DI your selected area you wanted to print up, there would be less noise because you've already handled the underexposure area on the original negative. So that was a little bit of an eye-opener. But those guys know what they're doing. They, they do tests all the time on their still cameras. They're fantastic. I love them because their brains are going in another world, really. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a final world of the film, is what they think about. And to get it, they just simply make things happen that will work in the finality of the, of the procedure rather than we worry about, we worry about it in pre-production uh, to get it right so that when we're shooting, we know it'll be right on film and on a positive that's going to be projected. They've got a different mindset, and I love it. So they were there the whole time, and we leaned on them heavily. We were able to contact them by two-way radio at any time and ask them a question, and they would give us an answer or come over and, and talk us through it, and we'd go through it and work it out, and then they'd have that result to work with in the post. So you were recording Ari Raw. Can you just talk to us about the setup you had? I think you had the Codex recorders on set. I mean, how did you set those up? Um, how, how did you work with them? As I said, I'm not that technical, but uh, I do know that the, uh, the option to go with Codex uh, was a definite one as far as they were concerned for the post and the quality of the recording. Uh, we were definitely going to go that way. I must say that, as I said, I, technically... Uh, it was another box that went on the back of the camera and kept hitting, hitting us in the chin when we, uh, when we were operating, but that's all right, we'll put up with that. Um, but uh, what, what the, everybody said was that is the recording a piece of equipment that we have to have. So we went with those and once again, a little worried about desert temperatures, desert cold, it changes so much between night and day. Uh, and during the day, we had dust storms. We had dust flying everywhere. Um, we, had, we had, as I said, temperature changes. We also had sometimes moisture in the air. Uh, all of those, um, we tried to protect the cameras, obviously. But the Kodak systems just didn't fail us at all. They, they, they came straight through with flying colours. And uh, I know that in the post now, they're very happy with the end results. I guess one of the advantages of shooting digitally over film is, of course... Uh, you don't have to worry about reloading in the desert, and uh, I guess you could be. Well, could you? Could you be a bit more flexible? It was. There's a little bit more paraphernalia uh, involved in, say, the the streamlining of film cameras that we got to get to last year. Uh, there were big boxes full of equipment that were still came with the digital cameras, but 
as I said, our, our team, camera team, was so used to it. Uh, we built special uh, boxes to put everything into. They had little fans. They had inlet and outlet areas for, to keep the air circulation going through to cool the, the electronics. Uh, and those boxes would, were complete. Cables came out and just went to the camera. And they were plonked onto, if we were on a move on the truck, they were plonked on the truck, bolted down so that they, they didn't fall off. And they were out of the way. Sometimes we sat on them to get our shot. But all of that was contained and built for us so that it, it was streamlined to, to that degree. As I said, still a little bigger and bulkier than, say, a film camera battery, but still usable. And as I said, our crew just swung into it. It just didn't become a problem at all. I guess one really big advantage of the digital pipeline is the ability to review your work. Could you talk to us a bit about how you kind of reviewed dailies or, or reviewed the work you were shooting? Absolutely. Uh, we, we were uh, transmitting as well from all the cameras in, in, on, an, on RF stations throughout the desert that the boys were running so that George, a lot of the time, was in a con- command vehicle which had all the monitors set up and they were, we were transmitting straight to him so he was able to see everything live off the cameras as we were shooting rather than uh, having to arrive there and then play back. So uh, that enabled George in the end then to be able to edit. And so, so uh, uh, he and Zeb Simpson, our video assist guy, was actually able to edit and find out what he would need for the next shot. It might have frustrated a few people waiting around for that to happen. Uh, but it, for George, it was a, gr- a godsend to be able to have that transmitted in, edit, and then say, no, we'll go again, but this time we'll do this and this and this and this. So that refined the film shooting for the final result a lot, a lot quicker and earlier than the normal procedures. Uh, it's been so great talking to you, John. Thank you so much. I guess uh, just in finishing, um, looking forward, would you shoot digitally again or what would be your choice moving forward? I would. I'd always shoot t- digitally. I-, I was a great advocate of it 10 or 12, 15 years ago when it started to come in. Uh, because unashamedly I, I am not a technical person that, that I felt that film and film negative is a beautiful image recording process. It's absolutely extraordinary what they got to with the, with the film emulsions and projection. But it is 120 years old and you still get scratches and dead flies are caught up in the reels. and it, It's a pretty archaic way to record an image. So when uh, digital started to come in, I felt this was going to be the difference between a, a steam-driven aeroplane and a jet uh, engine, that we have to have it, we should have it. That, that's the advancement of the recording of, of uh, moving images. And, and I think that the way it's caught on is extraordinary. I mean, it's R&D, it's vertical whereas film development now is pretty well stopped. Um, and I think that its recording of images coupled with the DI and the ability to, to click a button literally on the DI and say, I want it to look like Kodak 5219 negative, click. That's what a negative would look like. You're there. You're on film negative, really, or so close. I defy anybody in the Midwest or in Alice Springs watching a movie to tell the difference between 
a digital uh, 5219 or a, a real 5219. So using that adage, and we all know that movies are shot for the Midwest of America, not for boffins, um, that to me that image is perfectly satisfactory and you do what you like with it in the DI, change it, manipulate it, uh, which we're going to do, I, I, I know, for Mad Max. Um, and it won't look anything like a film image and it won't look anything like a good digital image. It'll be its own image for that film. And I think that's the wonder of it. So am I alone in thinking his comments about not lighting actors and not lighting to match lighting yeah. and not and just shooting? It's and just a brilliant Aussie realist that, you know, it's about getting it. Sometimes it's just about getting the shot. You know, it's sometimes about just getting it in the can, and then and then you know. And, and the whole I idea, love how it's sort of derogatory is to boffins in a way, and how. <laughs> but and yet, no, he's not really. He, well, he, he, he says openly he likes them, but the thing is, this whole idea that you would shoot the day for night stuff two stops over. Scarce, yeah. I mean, that's it's only possible if you've got latitude in the Arri. I mean, it's an, if this comes off, mm. shooting in the Arri, recording on the Codex, what a validation because. We have no idea what this is going to look like yet. We've seen, you know, on set locations, and we're going to post photos of him shooting with the um, the Arri. But shooting the Arri and obviously recording it on the codex, so you get the digital files, not the. Because um, interestingly, when we come to talk uh, next week to Richard Carpenter, who shoot shot on the Arri for Jobs, he literally shot that uh, progress. You know, like you recorded it in right. camera, right. not right. using no, the codex. No, no codex. Yeah. Um, and he was really pleased with the results, but but he was shooting stuff that was you know, as you'll hear, pretty close to what, uh, you know, they got and they used in jobs. In this case, John Seale's talking about shooting stuff so radically away from where it's going to end up because he has so much faith in the DI mm. and how much latitude they've caught captured capturing the full raw files on the codex. I am just stunned. Mm. I mean, I, it just scares the bajillicans out of me. The bajillicans? Bajillicans. Crikey. <laughs> Yeah, no, thank you, John, for taking the time for that because that was terrific. And it was, if you were there at the, at the day, it was a brilliant presentation between him and, and also from David Burr who um, was uh, shooting with him on that on that film. Brilliant. I can't wait for it to come out. And it's phenomenally great for them to give us access to that interview and to, um, you know, other material. Because before, the, literally the film's about, they're about to start doing, you know, some pickups and it's still in post and, you know, literally probably not even does, you know, we won't see it probably till I'd say late next year, who knows? So it's phenomenal to get a, a great heads up um, so early. Yeah, and from such a recognised Academy Award winning uh, DOP, yes, he was you. very generous with his time, but I've got to say, yeah, it, it was just pure joy to hear him talk and the uh, the blunt honesty of it. You know, in a world of PR and filtering, it gets back to what I said at the beginning. Like, the world's a more interesting place with characters. In Absolutely, it. and and he definitely is that. Is that. It's it's really good to have, you know, grounded, non-wank... No, in no way can you call him a wanker. No. I actually saw one of the shots of a 5D getting wiped out by a, um, a uh, vehicle. Yes. <laughs> it was pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yes. I think that was a daily. It was a daily thing for them. You know, it was the day they should. You know, tally count, kind of like you know, almost like scratching it on the side of a vehicle, like a, like a, a Stuka bomber. Very funny. Yeah. Though again, making that five D stuff marry in well with the. Um, that will be interesting. Yeah. So. Uh, mm. Yeah. Well, we are I, so going to follow that. Yeah. So. Um, 
wrap it up. Yes. So obviously want to do is our blog post this week. Um, uh, that earlier uh, interview earlier in the show. Um, let me just get the URL for that. And um, uh, and I have a quick little shout out to a new podcast, which is a little bit, it's a digital it's a digital filmmaking podcast, but it's maybe geared more towards uh, Mac and iOS development. But it definitely has a um, a digital a digital um, imaging bent to it. It's called uh, Tech Move or techmovepodcast.com. And uh, the guys have been uh, pinging me on Twitter to have a listen. It's great. So, yeah, have a listen. It's, uh, yeah, techmovepodcast.com, and obviously you can get that on iTunes as well. And Kirk Tuck's uh, blog is Visual Science Lab, or one word, visualsciencelab.blogspot.com. And uh, depending right. on what country you're in, it auto-finishes it with your local... Um, thing so ah, if you click it in Australia it'll make it a dot uh, a you but that's a blogspot thing but you can get to it I can guarantee by visualsciencelab.blogspot.com yes right and uh, also you should check out his actual uh, normal uh, website as well because he's a uh, he's a good guy and um, Jace what have you been we've got a sort of plan coming up you uh yeah uh, oh, I'm hopefully maybe heading. Yeah, well, won't jinx. I have hopefully got a couple of spots in Europe to do in the next few weeks. So another week or so. I'm doing a shoot here for the next week or so. Still tossing up what I'm going to shoot it on. Actually, might be doing on the one DC for the first time. Got right. a bit of a, got a bit of a loner playing with that, and uh, it's quite interesting to have a bit of a play and see the difference between that and, you know, I've I've kind of poo pooed that camera, and I still probably will for some reasons continue to do so, but. Uh, after I've had a shoot, a bit of a play with it, and yeah, you know, I'll probably be a bit more. I'll either be re- reaming it all the more, or um, somewhat singing its praises. We'll see. So, yeah, we'll have a couple of those on a shoot, and then uh, hopefully uh, over to Europe for a couple of things. Maybe if I can swing it, maybe go by IBC. We'll see how we go. But yeah, uh, that would be awesome. I'm looking forward to getting my hands. Um or getting a look at some footage from the Blackmagic uh, pocket camera, which is yeah. up here, huh? Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's Oh, actually, very quickly on that that, that front, on the tiny part of the gear, uh, go to um, viewfactor.net. They've just released a very nice... I'm not sort of big, huge on all these cages, and I've never really spent much time looking at things like GoPro cages and things, but uh, Blackmagic, uh, they've just... Viewfactor have just released a very nice, beautiful little... Uh, cage because i think this camera as i've touched on i think will be a really good thinking person's gopro for round mounting and rigging dashboard cameras putting on the mini kind of suctioning to the sides of cameras and making sort of traveling rig shots uh where you're not so worried about depth of field uh all the more all the more convenient and easy and small but they made a very beautiful little little um cage for the black magic pocket camera and even has for 40 dollars more you can have a lovely little wooden hand grip that goes on the side and it beautifully tees up with uh hot rod cameras hotrodcameras.com have uh, made a very nice pl mount I'm not sure what glass you're going to put on here on a 16 mil size sensor but there's plenty of pl mount sort of 16 mil sort of covering glass out there uh and teams up beautifully with the um there's photos of this uh, on Viewfactor's site or, uh, and on, uh, so on in, is, in the uh, show notes. So this is a cage for the Blackmagic Pocket Camera. Cage for Blackmagic 
pocket camera. At about 100 bucks, right? 100 bucks, And then, yeah, another 40 bucks for the little wooden hand grip. And there's a 1,000 uh, mounting points and still letting you get to access points for controls and for replacing batteries and things. But, yeah, if this is for a camera, which I think is really good for rigging and would have been a very nice thing. They would have loved it on Fury Road. <laughs> you know, you would have had a much better chance of, uh, even though the depth of field's not there, you would have a really good chance of, uh, if you're shooting kind of rawish sort of, pr- well, you're shooting ProRes versus compressed HD64, would have loved to have a, you know, these would have been perfect little crash cam, smash cams. Um, yeah, so if when you, this is a really good rig camera, it's great to have a lot of mounting options to be able to bolt it and strap it and put it under hoods of cars and in fenders and by wheels and on the sides of motorbikes and on dashes and and suction these things down and you know you want to have it you want to have a mounting point on every every which way and then to be able to use you know pl glass from from main unit is uh, a bonus so 7.99 for the pl mount to micro, micro four thirds to um to pl uh and yeah when you see the shots of this it's a beautiful little rig together i just yeah so I'll, i'd love to have a bit of a play i'm sort of you haven't pre-ordered one have you black pocket camera i'm sort of on a list of sorts somewhere. Are you? But not, you know, I haven't put any money down. If one shows up, I'll I'll try and grab one. But I, I, it's one of those things which I'm going to know. I know a job's going to come up and I'm going to need one. I'm going to need one like yesterday. Yeah, I must admit. Um, as long as one of us has one, we can sort of. Well, see, now that was one of my attitude was. And I was relying on my good friend, Jeff Huser, who had said he'd ordered one. Ah, okay. And then when I went to him the other day and said, hey, where are you on the order? He said, oh, I cancelled my order. Oh. I was like, Dude, you should have told me. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> there are two people in the world. Warner brother. <laughs> well, yeah, but all you're the bloody same. You'll go, I I'll am. go, can I borrow that? And you go, no, I just sold it on eBay. Why don't you tell Dude. me I don't bought it? And you're going, yeah, no. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, you don't like taking money from me, I think, is the yeah, problem. Yeah. Um, by the way, Wooden Camera also has um, a, a, like a half cage, which I kind of prefer. It's a pocket cage. It's like, again, 99 bucks. Everybody is doing cages yes, yeah, for this, this is camera. a half cage. It's like a half cage rather than a fully encasing cage because I really don't think that I want a fully encasing it, It's It uh, doesn't need a fully encasing cage. It's kind of... You need a bottom plate, top plate. Defeating the purpose thing. a lot of the times with these small cameras. Yeah. They are pretty small cameras. But yeah. yes, you can have a... Um, I don't, I'm not really it's cute. That black, the wooden camera one is good. But I, it's more to be able to bottom mount it and or put handles and things on the top of the thing really, isn't it? Yeah, and of course you may want to put um, rods on for yeah you are going that way. I think the the, the, the not saying advantage, but the difference to the viewfactor cage is that it is there is mounting points every which way. Again, if you're wanting to, you know, get rods and suction cups and mounts, and you're trying to mount this thing, you want to put a uh, million isn't that hard defeating points the point, on. Though? Like, well, it's still it's it's about having you know when you're trying to rig these things. The heavier the camera is, the more you have to strap it and, re- you know, you want to be able to get it in the right spot. And if, mm. you know, you don't want to have to mount it upside down if mm. possible or, you know, you just, if, 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 there's, if, there's a, if there's a place, you know, if you put sort of quarter 20s all over it, you just got a better chance of getting it in, in the right spot with the minimal amount of arms and rigs and straps and things. And if you keep, you know, if you keep the camera small and light, then it, le- it needs less it needs less, you know. But what is the less, point less of having hardware. a pocket camera if it becomes so rigged up? Well, I'm not saying you're not going to go out and carry it, you know, go to the beach with it. And, you know, it's it's only if you're doing, you know, if you're doing like 
interview if you're doing like dialogue inside a, a a car or whatever it's really easy to rig these things um john brawley's using a lot of these for interior car interiors for uh pu- puberty blues which he's shooting at the moment so he's that's that's a lot of the time Pocket when one? it comes yeah absolutely i would love to see that yeah he's uh, wasn't there, sarcastic, I'm, sure was. I'm sure he's blogged or he's tweeted it there's there's plenty of pictures of uh, he, you know, he's got a lot of cameras in his arsenal for that show, and it's definitely a horses for courses camera truck. And when they come to do driving stuff, they won't bother doing huge hostess trays mounted onto the sides of the car, and then they just strap it down and weight it and things. They'll literally almost keep the camera. You're going to keep the cameras inside. You don't have to have windows down. You don't have to be shooting through the reflections of the windows. You don't then have to have to cut the reflection of the light, which means then if you are perhaps doing driving for real and not low loadering, it means the artist can actually see where they're going, and they're not going to have camera gear sticking three feet out either side of the uh the the car and be worried about um you don't then have to get maybe say permits and you don't have to sort of you know it sort of it makes things a lot more um you know a lot more um uh practical really if you don't have to have you uh, double the width of your car and then yeah, my my only problem <laughs> put it on a low was always the same problem right which is I love the dynamic range that you're getting out of the pocket camera mm. i love the principle of it i just don't have a bunch of four-thirds lenses no this is definitely uh an issue i think uh, i would love to part of the reason for getting one would be to um uh, play with some a speed booster perhaps and see what the micro four-thirds uh, mount speed boosters would look like on this camera um it's never going to quite give you the full benefit of, say, you know, a micro four-thirds sensor because it's a smaller sensor than micro four-thirds. But, um, uh, yeah, I'd love to see, you know, what, what we can get with speed boosters out of this. you get got ProRes, nice 1080p ProRes camera and uh, then the ability to have a, a larger a larger sensor look out of it without having to necessarily, you know, have a larger camera. So, Do you know what I find really amusing about buying a Blackmagic camera? And this is not anything, it makes complete sense, right? But it was the first time that you go to a website and you say, where do you, where do you want to buy the camera? And I'm talking about a pocket camera. Right? This is meant to be virtually point and shoot, but it's not. But, you know, I go, okay, my location, I'm in Sydney. And what would you like? I'd like a Blackmagic camera. And what is your OS? What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, it's yeah. like really, it's like uh, normally that wasn't a question that was asked. If you want to buy a camera... They were like, well, before I consult you, I need to know what uh, operating system you're running on. That just, you know what I mean? It's, am I crazy? Yeah. <laughs> we'll get there. So Metabones make a few micro, few micro four thirds speed boosters. They make a Nikon one, which is $400. They make a Contax or Yashica one, Yashica or Contax to micro four thirds speed booster for three ninety nine. So it'll be interesting to see how that works or what sort of field of view you get on these cameras and how much more bulk it adds. Can I fess up one other reason I had a problem? Mm. It was just like, I've got Canon batteries. I've got how many battery charges. Yes. I thought of having to employ us, and then I have all my Epic and Volts, and then I have the the big red ones, and then I have the Sony ones for the lights. The thought of having to lug around an entire another set of batteries and power charging yep. apparatus yep. so my lights can be charged my camera can be charged my camera battery can be charged my SLR 
It was just like, oh, I really want to just be those bloody <laughs> things. Don't get me wrong. I think uh, in Australia, I think it's like 1200 bucks for the Blackmagic pocket camera. I think it's very good. Don't get me wrong. I just would really like it if it took a Canon battery <laughs> and if it had a... um, um, And I had a bunch of four-thirds lenses. Mm. Yeah. Actually, there's very quickly, there's a little... Someone's... Oh, here we go. Here we go. I'll send you the link. Put it in the show notes. This is um, Cage Pro. It's a little... I'd say, I didn't really talk much about cages, but here we are. I know we're nearly wrapping up. Um, this is... Uh, I think it's kind of like a Kickstarter. Huh? I need the diehard listeners are listening now. It's like a, uh, it's a... What's it called? A little, it's Cage Pro. Let me flick you the link. It is a a powered cage for a GoPro where you can use Canon LPE6 batteries to power a GoPro for five or six hours. I think it's one of these, can you get behind this project and we'll make it thing. Mm-hmm. L- like, uh, oh dear, I lost it. Okay. Because when I looked up Cage Pro, I got BMX Photo- biking. Photographyandcinema.com, A-N-D cinema. Photographyandcinema.com slash pages slash Cage Pro. Uh, yeah. So up to about four. Um, so it's a little sort of wraparound cage. And it's, again, it got mounting points. But part of it is that if you're doing time lapse and stuff, it's terrific because you always have to sort of. A lot of the times I've had a crappy time lapse come out of, from a GoPro is because the thing ran out of batteries, not because it ran out, filled the card or any of that sort of stuff. So, you got it. I mean, I mean, photography and cinema in camera cages. I'm that page, the SLR slash page. pages slash cage pro. I, I I can't even be bothered to bore people to death while I look it up. You just tell me it's good, I'll believe you. There you go. I've sent you the link. We can edit all this bit out, can't we? Okay, I found it. The first and only powered cage for the GoPro Hero camera. Mm. Well, I don't like talking about stuff I haven't actually tried myself. So. No, no, but it's not it's easy concept, to ch- try it because it's our goal is simple. If we can reach a combination of 500 tweets or Facebook likes to this project page, you'll help to convince us that you believe it's a great project. It's a weird thing. It's kind of like oh, if convince you, if Kickstarter you, or something. It's like kick, kicking in the sh- kick, kick, kick the shin <laughs> starter. What the hell? If you get enough tweets, you think it might be worthwhile. I'm sure you've already made it. Come on, I can see there's pictures of it. Jason Wingrove and 435 other people like this. <laughs> say that. What? Does? Oh, dear. Yes, you and 434 other others use. Yes, exactly. Anyway, worth a look. Quite interesting. And give it a, a, a shin Kickstarter or whatever the hell they're after here. Give it a like or something. <laughs> Someone will want this. Anyway, I just thought I'd... Uh, while you're ranting about having one less battery style and charger, well, type yeah, I'm going to have one less battery charger. But unfortunately, I've now got to lug around this bloody um, cage GoPro <laughs> thing. With no, I'd like the GoPro, but it seems like a um, yeah. You just put it in there and leave it in there. It's still pretty small. Okay. Anyway, okay, we're really finishing now. Yep, really finishing. So, uh, Jace, uh, URL for. Your fabulous website, uh, Wingrove.tv, uh, or I think maybe you can go to vimeo.com slash Wingrove, maybe, uh, or twitter.com slash Wingrove. And you, Seymour. Um, 
I'm Mike Seymour on Twitter. And yes, you can go to vimeo.com slash Wingrove and it gets a picture of you with someone holding an umbrella over the, your head. Yes. Um, very nicely. And and a time lapse from three weeks ago out the window. What's that? I don't know about that. Uh, I shot that with my iPhone not turning my my. Uh, you ran your battery down on an overseas trip. I did not switch off my uh, current emitting device uh, during takeoff and landing. No. Kept my iPhone time-lapsing out the window. Okay. Isn't the trick that like, is... Isn't that like going to endanger you and all other passengers on the flight? Oh, God, yes. You're in danger if you're flying with me. I could bring the whole plane down. Right. Seriously. Trick is that you just tuck it up behind the blind. You pull the blind down just a little bit, covers the iPhone. No one really notices that you're you have your time your your. But how long did you time lapse? Oh, I don't know. I just did it while I was on my last 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 sort of tour. So this is of the duty. view from from three A, huh? Three A, five B, whatever. Plane. This is a view from my various um, seats over time on the last gig. Good, good. Well, I'm glad to know that. I'm heading yeah. off on um, Saturday myself to go to Canada. Excellent. To Vancouver. Excellent. What's in Canada? Oh, Canadians, really. <laughs> All right, well, that's it for the show. Until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. Thanks so much for being with us, guys. Cheers, and guys. Uh, as I said, coming up in uh, the next episode, we'll be talking to the cinematographer from Jobs, the one and only Russell Carpenter. Mm. Terrific. DOP. I love Russell Carpenter. We're trying to do, obviously bring you more uh, talks with high-end uh, cinematographers. So let us know what you think. Post uh, stuff to us on Twitter or on Facebook or over at fxguide.com. Always want to hear from you guys. Uh, until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. And I'm Jason Wingrove. See you later. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.